0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. My name is Dylan and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Stay tuned to hear some stories that will keep you energized. Terra Informer Amanda Rooney chatted with Hélène Lauzon the co-chair on an expert panel set up by the federal government to work on investigating the modernization of the National Energy Board. Then we'll hear from our archives, Danielle Dalgoy and Ria Lacani caught up with electrical engineer Warren Saraur from the Solar Energy Society of Alberta in November 2014. But first, some headlines from around the country. A new Liam Neeson film, Hard Power, has been denied filming by Parks Canada due to concerns raised over the plot. The film originally applied to Parks Canada to film in locations such as Banff, Lake Louise Townsite, and the Columbia Icefields, but the permit was denied by Parks Canada weeks before the crew was set to begin shooting because Parks Canada was concerned about content, specifically the depiction of a First Nations gang boss. But the show is not over. The filming has been relocated from the first choice, Albertan National Parks, to locations in British Columbia. There were 1.7 million birds poached in the Republic of Cyprus in 2016. The birds are being caught using mist nets spread between a variety of shrubs suitable for multiple species. One net can trap 400 birds. Why are people doing this? Well, they are selling the birds on the black market to be pickled, roasted, or fried, and then eaten in secret as a local delicacy. As jobs in Cyprus go, poaching is relatively well-paying. Of the 1.7 million birds killed, 800,000 were killed on the British military territory. The territory has attempted to eradicate the acacia bushes from the area, but they were met with protests and stopped. Martin Harper, RSPB conservation director, said, This report sadly highlights that the British base is the number one bird-killing hotspot on the whole island of Cyprus. Many much loved garden bird species are being trapped and killed for huge profit by criminal gangs. The trappers' brazen prevention of the removal of their criminal infrastructure from MOD land could never be tolerated here in the UK. End quote. So, what does this mean? The spokesperson for the Sovereign Base Areas said the UK is committed to tackling the illegal bird crime and is pleased with the increased enforcement which has led to arrests, equipment seizures, and fines. The rising trend of bird deaths in 2017 has recently halted. In January 2013, eastern China experienced rather extreme air pollution that lasted about one month. It has now been discovered that it is linked to the loss of Arctic sea ice the previous autumn. Due to the melting ice and increased snowfall, wind circulation patterns were altered. According to Prof. Hang Wang from Georgia Tech University, quote, A ridge system controls the intensity and location of this cold air moving south, so what happens when you put in sea ice forcing or snow forcing, the ridge system gets weaker and moves eastward. Instead of cold air blowing in the eastern part of China, it went to Korea and Japan in January 2013. Findings indicate that the loss of Arctic sea ice and snowfall over the forests of Eurasia were the critical points to the haze event. If Arctic ice continues to shrink due to climate change, the scientists say similar events will likely recur. The Chinese government has reduced emissions, and without such reduction, it could be much worse. The main concern for the Chinese government now is the Beijing Winter Olympics in 2022. If the country wants to clean up the air by then, they will need to reduce emissions at a far more drastic level. The big picture of this event? China can take more steps to limit and decrease particulate matter issues, but shrinking Arctic sea ice is having unexpected effects around the world, and curbing the globally produced greenhouse gases that are shrinking it is, well, a global effort. That's it for headlines. If you're interested in learning more about any of these stories, we've posted links to more in-depth stories on our website. About two weeks ago, Terra informer Amanda Rooney spoke with Hélène Lauzon. Miss Lauzon is the co-chair on an expert panel set up by the federal government to work on investigating how the National Energy Board can be modernized. The National Energy Board regulates international and interprovincial energy projects, such as pipelines, power lines, and energy exports. The five-person expert panel has been traveling across Canada holding discussions with stakeholders and the public. They have even held separate days, especially encouraging the participation of Indigenous individuals and groups. Here is Amanda Rooney speaking with Miss Lauzon, about some of what the board has heard so far.
1: So, uh, who did you talk to, Amanda?
2: Um, I talked to Helen uh, Lauzon. She's one of the five experts on the new panel that is leading the modernization of the National Energy Board, or the NEB.
3: So I am Hélène Lauzon. I am the co-chair of the um, expert panel responsible for the modernization of the National Energy Board Act.
1: So what do they mean by the modernization of the National Energy Board Act?
3: we are not employees from National Energy Board and we are not employees for natural Resources Canada we are independent members uh, and we were entrusted by Minister Carr to review the National Energy Board Act so that's why we um, undertook uh, a um, a tour across Canada to try to gather all Citizens, all Canadian citizens, comments on what they think about National Energy Board process, role, structure, the way they operate.
1: Okay, so they've turned around Canada asking Canadians what they think of the National Energy Board Act? Yeah. Why do they feel the need to modernize it?
2: Well, Carter, it's been a long time coming. Back in 2014, a longtime energy sector participant, Mark Ellison, also the former head of BC Hydro, pulled out of his role as an intervener in the NEB hearing on the Kinder Morgan Pipeline project. In a letter to the NEB, Mr. Ellison expressed his disapproval of the process, calling it a farce and stating that he believes that the NEB is, quote, engaging in public deception, end quote, and is a, quote, waste of time and effort, unquote, and, quote, reflect a lack of respect for hearing participants, unquote. More recently, the regulatory board in charge of the Energy East pipeline had all of its members recuse themselves due to conflicts of interest and the NEB ruled to restart the entire hearing from scratch. Public perception of the NEB is pretty negative. As the Common Sense Canadian succinctly put it in a headline from 2014, National Energy Board clearly doesn't serve Canadians.
1: Oh gosh, that's bleak.
3: Yes,
2: so... This
3: might be one of the. uh, This is one of the concern we are hearing from the Canadians. Canadians are are telling us that um, they there's a lack of trust. Mm -hmm. There's a lack of transparency. So, So now we're taking notes and we have recommendations eventually to send to Minister Carr. But we've heard a lot on. Um, governance, as you may know, according to the National Energy Board Act, uh, if someone wants to become a permanent be- member of uh, this organization, the NEB, they have to live in Calgary. So people were saying, "Well, no, because it's too close to the industry. Should- <laughs> they should not be living in Calgary." So this is what we've heard so far.
1: Wait, so is that like currently, like the board has to be from Calgary, or are they scrapping that, or that's hopefully, like hopefully that's. Oh, that's what they want to do by modernizing it.
2: Probably be one of the recommendations. Yeah, yeah. Like
1: Skype's a thing.
3: What we've heard so far during our consultations is that some people are saying, well, the head office is located in Calgary, so maybe it's too close to the industry. Maybe it should be moved to Ottawa. So this is one other thing we've heard, and the other thing we've heard is that. People are saying, well, the the, the people that are um, hearing all these cases, these uh, pipelines uh, application or projects, they are coming mostly from industry. so there should be more um, a, a diversity of expertise and geographically speaking as well. You should have all kind of stakeholders um, that could be hired by um, National Energy boards.
1: So, what are people saying about the public participation in the hearings?
3: In terms of public participation, we heard a lot of concerns from the citizens. What we've heard is that now, if they want to appear during an hearing, they have to demonstrate that they, um, they, ha- they are an affected party.
1: So, on the modernization panels, tour around the country, they've been hearing from many Indigenous groups. What are they saying?
3: Indigenous people are telling us, well, it's not because a pipeline does not cross our property that we are not an affected party, because downstream we could be affected if ever the water course is affected, or if this pipeline cross our lands, we could be affected. So this concept of um, affected party, uh, citizens are saying, well, it's, limited, it should be open to anyone who would like to participate, who would like to give any comments. So this is what we are hearing hearing as well. Every city we are visiting, we are there two days. One day for the general public, the other day for the Indigenous people. But in both cases, uh, everyone is invited. So even if it's the first day, an Indigenous person can attend, and the second day, and non-indigenous people can attend, but on the Indigenous Day, we are hearing a lot on the fact that Indigenous people would like to be uh, involved from the beginning until the end of a project. So they would like to be member well, they would like to be member of the board, but they would like also to have a role to play during the monitoring of a pipeline. The, uh, to ensure uh, the compliance of the pipeline, the enforcement of conditions. That's because, as you may know, when there's a approval given to a um, pipeline company, there are uh, some many conditions to be complied with that they have to comply with. Sorry, and then if uh, NED is not doing it according to some citizen, they're saying they're thinking or their perception is that National Energy Board. Does not um, ensure the enforcement. So indigenous peoples are telling us we would be ready to, to monitor to, to play a role and we will just get training and but we would like so.
1: So does that NEB take into account climate change commitments and goals?
2: No, and people have expressed concern about it.
3: The other thing we've heard is that the climate change, and you must have learned, must have heard that as well. That uh, and National Energy Board does not take into consideration the climate change goal, and how are we going to reconcile these climate change goals with the development of our um, national energy policy? That's what we are hearing, um, and what what we've heard is that some people believe that there should be a, a national energy policy and climate change policy. Uh, explaining how to reconcile these uh, policies because when comes the time to, re- to uh, start the process, the regulatory process, people are saying, well, National Energy Board doesn't seem to take into consideration the climate change goals. So that creates some a frustration from people and some I think they would, there's a lack of trust as well. Uh, we've heard about the lack of transparency. Canadian citizens, Canadian citizens that uh, have attended our consultation are saying, well, we don't know exactly how these pipelines are monitored. Um, are there in a lot of um, offenses? Uh, there should be on the website all this information regarding the um, transparency of the pipeline companies.
1: So what are the next steps? Like how are they going to take these public consultations into like concrete changes?
3: In April, we will be drafting our report and we have to send our um, recommendations to Minister Carr um, by May 15. We really hope that um, these recommendations will be taken into consideration by the minister.
1: How does an act even become amended?
3: our um, comprehension or our understanding of the process that the Minister Carr would eventually analyze our recommendations and would table a bill next fall to amend the National Energy Board Act. So we're really um, hoping that our recommendations will be incorporated into this bill. Okay, and if ever you want to us to uh, answer to some of your questions, mm-hmm. Once our recommendations are um, ready, I mean, not ready, but public, uh, then uh, we would be pleased to.
2: That would be wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You can find summaries of what the Modernization Panel has heard on their website at www.neb-modernization.ca.
0: That was Amanda Rooney speaking with Alain Lazan, the spokeswoman for a federal panel on the modernization of the National Energy Board. Now that we've heard about the Canadian government and energy situation, I think it's time to hear about energy from another arena. As solar technology has improved over the last decade, it is rapidly becoming a viable alternative to burning fossil fuels. And as energy industry heads scramble to maintain their dominance over the delivery of the essential thing, energy, certain myths have begun to creep into the conversation. Some people say that solar power is too costly to produce and thusly not a real alternative for the everyday consumer. Others say that the process of manufacturing solar panels, or modules as the professionals call them, is just as hazardous to the environment as conventional electricity generation. So why mess with what we already know? They say we should stick with the reliable energy that we've always trusted and continue using the infrastructure in place in the same way we always have. In 2014, Daniel Delgoy caught up with business owner, electrical engineer, and solar power enthusiast Warren Sarar to bust these myths. After she and Terra Informers Ria Lakani attended Sarar's talk on solar energy hosted by the Solar Energy Society of Alberta called Solar Energy, How to Generate Your Own Power and Sell It Back to the Grid. They both wanted to know more about the viability of solar power for themselves and the people they know.
4: Hi, my name is Warren Sarauer, and I am um, the past chair of the, of the board for the Solar Energy Society of Alberta. And I also happen to own a couple of businesses, uh, Evergreen and Gold, Renewable Energy. And um, we help people to install solar systems on their house so they can have solar power. Well, I actually grew up in northern British Columbia, along the Peace River. So my father used to work for BC Hydro, and uh, I grew up on the river and, and got to see the other, the downside maybe of the hydro development, okay? It's a very natural place. Anyway, when I was old enough, graduated high school and chose to come to Edmonton. So I moved here about 30 years ago. And uh, I went to Nate, and so I have a diploma in electronics engineering technology. And from that, I uh, worked for a multinational company that was out of Germany. So I got the chance to go to Europe fairly often, go to Germany. Started to see, you know, in the early days what they were doing in terms of things, just simple things like recycling and all that kind of stuff. And I. Sp- Probably have always had an environmental streak. Just never really thought about it, right? So always composted, always recycled, always did those things. Really the next thing that made sense was to uh, to buy some renewable energy, put it on our house. I, I find actually, ironically, that uh, a lot of the people who talk the talk don't put their money where the talk is and and i think this is something that if you are strongly environmentally conscious you have to keep in mind too you do need to financially support these things as well okay they just don't happen on their own and we're a very rich society here and, and i think we almost have an obligation when we're rich enough to start to do these things right because if we don't do it it's just not going to happen by itself. It, it's not a matter of shaming people into doing it or something like that. It's just to show people that it, there's no downside to it. right? And so you've got to show people that it's not as expensive as they probably think it is. And that the payback on it is better than they thought it was. The last several years, it's, it's been a big focus on uh, the issue of climate change. And you know we just don't see our governments doing anything about it. They talk about it a lot. They set far off criteria for reaching their greenhouse gas emission reduction goals, and then they just don't do anything about it, right? And then when we get close, they're like, oh, well, oops, we missed it. I have to start all over again. You know, and that's okay to a certain point, but at some point somebody's got to do something, right? And so I think that's, that's where, for those of us who can do something, and I mean financially or technically, Right, I think we have an obligation almost to do that. So for myself, I'm, I'm fortunate I can afford to do this and I have a, the technical knowledge and the confidence I think to just to, to go and do these things. All right, and uh, because at some point we have to stop talking about it and we have to start doing it. You know, we don't have to be negative about it. We don't have to shame people who want to drive a large car or live in a big house or anything like that. It's it's not, it's, that's not part of it. Um, we have to bring everybody into it. Right, and to show people that it's not us and them, it's all of us. Right, but I make it a point to tell people that it's not just about the solaring. It truly is something that is is so simple, and yet we overlook it all the time. Um, It's the efficiency side of it. Right, there's so much to be gained from efficiency. It's cheap, like really cheap, maybe even free in a lot of cases. Right, you're never going to convince people to do something they don't want to do. That's I believe that. So you can educate people, and then they can make their own choices, right? And I think if you do that, and you do it in an honest way, uh, people will see your point. My wife has a great example, Um, you know, we use a lot of electricity where we're not even around our houses and stuff. You would never go to work and leave your sink running, the tap in your sink running. We kind of get that, that part of it kind of clicks naturally, right? But in terms of things like electricity, we just, we don't see that part of it. You know, that ha- that penny hasn't dropped yet, I don't think, for us. And so that, you know, in terms of efficiencies, I would say that's the first part is to just don't use it if you don't have to. So in Europe, you pay $4 a litre for gas. You're not going to drive a 3500 series diesel pickup to go get groceries. There really is no storage of electricity in the system, it doesn't matter the type of generation technology. The first large power plant in North America was at Niagara Falls and it's a hydroelectric dam. So there is storage in hydroelectric dams because you have a lake behind the dam and this basically becomes a version of a battery. But with fossil fuel type systems, there really is no let's say storage of it. So you, you, if you need more electricity, you burn more coal. If you need less electricity, you burn less coal. When renewables come along, they have um, it's hard to control the fuel that, that powers it. So in the case of wind, if it's windy when you don't need any electricity, then you're basically generating electricity and wasting it. And so, and in the case of solar, you know we generate electricity in the daytime and we need electricity at night so that they don't match. You know, in terms of things like climate change, there's an awful lot of people that are either waiting for technology to save us or waiting for the government to save us. Uh, I would say the technology is already here. It's robust, actually it's rather old technology, it's quite simple. Uh, it's getting better all the time, but it's good enough for what we need right now. And it certainly solves some of that issues. In, in terms of government, I, I don't expect actually the government to do anything until they actually have to. If this is something you want to have happen, you've got to do two things. You have to do it yourself, okay? And then you have to push the government to do something about it. The governments will follow. They always do. Uh, on, in terms of the um, electricity system, we really do share a lot of these costs, uh, because it's, it's good for the whole society. And so really, you should think about, first of all, voting. This is really a critical thing because this is, a lot of this is public policy. If you have what you feel is a sufficient amount of um, money, um, spend it on the stuff. If you think this is really important, um, put your money into it. Okay, that's uh, as consumers we have a huge amount of power, and and it's true. I mean, it's, it's it drives a lot of behavior. The price of solar. Energy is dropping so quickly and so rapidly, so there's periods in history where this comes along, and for those people who don't see it, um, it can be quite painful.
0: That was Danielle Dolgoy and Ria Lakani speaking with Warren Sarrar from the Solar Energy Society of Alberta. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, situated on Treaty 6 territory. If you want to hear more, check out our website at terrainforma.ca and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Shelley Jodoin, Carter Gozitsa, Amanda Rooney, and Ashley Couches. I've been your host, Dylan Hall. Tune in next week for more environmental news from Terra Informa.